these songs of praise into your name. We thank you, Lord, for your word you've given unto us and the, the opportunity to study and to learn from your word and to hear from you. And Lord, I pray that today you would speak to each of our hearts through uh, this passage here this morning. Lord, uh, empower me now, I pray, through the Spirit. Give me wisdom and guidance as I speak. I pray that it would indeed be your words, <clears throat> it be your thoughts, and that, Lord, we will uh, receive a blessing today, a challenge from your word, and, and leave, Lord, knowing that we uh, have been in your presence. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, if you remember, of course, the first 17 verses here of Acts chapter 18, we've been looking at Paul's ministry in the city of Corinth. And we saw that when he arrived in Corinth, he was <clears throat> perhaps feeling a little bit down, a little bit discouraged because of the events in Athens just before. Okay? Athens was a pretty difficult mission field for Paul. And so as he arrives in Corinth, the Lord gives him some encouragement. Okay? And we, we saw that he brought along friends just at the right moments. In the province of God, these friends arrived, each when Paul needed the most to encourage him and to lift him up. And then last week, we saw in particular that God himself arrived and encouraged Paul. God arrived and, and gave him a vision during the night. And uh, in that vision, God gave him a word of assurance. And basically, God assured Paul, Paul he said, Paul, you're going to have success in your ministry and I'm going to protect you. No harm is going to come to you as you serve in Corinth. And we saw that God kept his word, you know, as God always does. God kept his word to his servant Paul. Paul had success in Corinth and indeed he was miraculously delivered uh, from the Jews who wanted to, to harm him. Okay, he's delivered there as the pro-council uh, ruled in his favour. Okay, when he was dragged before the council there, before the court, uh, the, the pro-council threw out the charges against him. And so Paul was miraculously delivered. And in verse 18, we now see that after a period of time, Paul uh, believes it's God's will for him to move on. It's God's will for him to leave Corinth and to begin the journey home to uh, his church at Antioch, his home church. Uh, it says in verse 18, And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren and sailed thence into Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila having shorn his head in Centria for he had a vow. So it says here that he tarried yet a good while. And at the end of that period, he then leaves Corinth and he's, he's heading for Antioch. That's where he's going. Okay? He's going back to Antioch. He's sending church. And we're not told exactly how long he stays in Corinth. We we assume that it's in addition to the 18 months mentioned back in verse 11. Okay, in verse 11 it says, and he continued there a year and six months. Okay, so we assume that this is an addition to that year and six months. And most commentators suggest that maybe another six months. So two years all up that he spends here in Corinth. As I said, we can't be exactly sure how long, but after this period of time he feels led of the Lord that it's God's will, it's God's timing for him to, to, to depart and to go back to Antioch. And so this morning in the passage before us, we, we see God's leading in the life of his servant. Okay? And we see how God uses different individuals to accomplish his work. So first of all here this morning, we see Paul's journey home. We see Paul's journey home. We won't read it again, but verse 18 down to verse 23 is where we see Paul's journey home. You know, with the Apostle Paul, God's will was always the determining factor. 
Okay, when you think about Paul and you think about his missionary journey and everywhere he went, it was always determined by what God you know, desired for him next. You know, where did God want him to travel next? And so the fact that he now leaves Corinth tells us that God is moving him on. Okay, he's moving, he's leaving because God's timing's right. God's will is for him to leave. And as he leaves now Antioch and he heads towards, uh, sorry, as he leaves Corinth and he heads towards Antioch, he takes with him his friends Aquila and Priscilla. Okay, it says that there in verse 18. It says, and sailed thence into Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. So these two friends, his friends he met in Corinth, they leave with him on this, this journey. And the first stop along the way is in Centria. Okay, at the end of verse 18, there we have this, uh, if you like, side note. Okay, Luke says, having shorn his head in Centria, for he had a vow. Now Luke tells us that in Centria, Paul got a haircut. Okay, a bit of a side note here, if you like. And Centria was the, the seaport for Corinth, okay? So it's about five miles away or eight kilometers to the southeast of the city. It's right on the coast of the Aegean Sea. And so Paul, Aquila and Priscilla, they've traveled across land and they come to this little seaport here. And it's from here that they set sail for Syria. But Luke gives us this, you know, if you like, strange little side note. The Paul here shaves his head. He has a haircut and it's in conclusion of a vow, a vow that he had taken upon himself. Now, most believe that this vow here is a Nazarite vow. Okay, there are other vows that Jews would take, but most believe that this is a Nazarite vow. And this vow was a personal vow. Okay? It was something that an individual would decide to take upon himself. Okay? And so this is not Paul conforming back to the law again. Okay? He's, he's spoken extensively about that, hasn't he? The Jews are not you know, bound by the law and that they shouldn't make the Gentiles bound, bound by the law. That's not what Paul is doing. This is a personal decision. Okay, it's a, it's a vow of devotion. And during this time of the Nazarite vow, they would let their hair grow and they would not partake of the fruit of the vine. That's basically what they would do uh, for an allotted period of time. And we're not told exactly why Paul took this vow. Uh, you know, perhaps it was part of his dedication to God while he was in Corinth. You know, that while he was there in this difficult place of ministry, he made this vow to the Lord that he would keep this vow until the Lord moved him on from Corinth. Another suggestion is that it was a vow of uh, an expression of gratitude for God, that maybe he took this vow upon himself to express his gratitude for what God had done in Corinth. But in any case, this vow is now uh, complete, and so he cuts his hair off, which was the usual way of ending the vow. They'd shave their hair, and they'd often go up to the temple as well and offer a sacrifice. Uh, to confirm the end of the vow. Now, we're not going to go into more about the vow this morning because we could spend time talking about it. I don't think it's necessary. But Paul has this vow and he completes the vow here. And so with that done, Paul now enters into the ship and he travels across the Aegean Sea and he comes to the city of Ephesus. Just read there verse 19. It says, And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So he enters the ship with Aquila and Priscilla. They go across the Aegean Sea and they land at the seaport Ephesus. You know, Ephesus was a major city. It was the capital city of Asia, okay, the, the Roman province of Asia. It was a city of 300,000 people. It was, it was a metropolis in its day. 
It was a city built in a large harbor, and so it grew wealthy through trade. And it also attracted many visitors to the city because of the great temple of Diana, okay, which Paul speaks about in chapter 19 extensively, this temple uh, to this false god, Diana. And apparently this temple was one of the seven wonders of the world in its day. And there's no doubt that this temple was uh, indeed majestic. It was magnificent. Uh, uh, I read this week one man who lived during the day, his name was Philon of Byzantium. He wrote this. He said, I've seen the walls and hanging gardens of ancient Babylon, the statue of Olympian Zeus, the Colossus of Rhodes, the, the mighty work of the high pyramids, and the tomb of Mount Seleus. When I saw the temple at Ephesus rising to the clouds, all these other wonders were put in the shade. That tells you how magnificent this temple must have been. Okay? He'd seen the pyramids, he'd seen the hanging gardens of Babylon, and he said that all them next to this were nothing. And so this is a pretty majestic temple that existed here in Ephesus. And so people would come from all over the world to see this temple. Okay? It was just a, a sight to behold. And in Paul's day, the temple was around 400 years old. Now, there was, there's three editions of it from what I read. Okay? There, was, there was one got destroyed, they rebuilt it, then it got destroyed again. But the one that existed in Paul's day had been standing for about 400 years. It was 137 metres long, 70 metres wide, and 18 metres tall. And it had 127 columns, all made out of marble. And so it's pretty big, pretty impressive. And inside this temple to Diana was the image of their false god, okay, the, their god Diana. And supposedly they, this image fell from heaven. If you go to Acts chapter 19, <clears throat> Acts chapter 19 and verse 35 it says, and when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, "Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of, Eph of, of the Ephesians is a worshipper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? Okay, this was, this was the legend that it fell from the sky. And most believe that it was a meteorite. Okay, there was a meteorite that had landed in the area and they'd taken that and set it up as their image. And apparently this was common in those days. They would do this, take meteorites and set them up as the image of their God. And so that's what's standing here inside this temple. This false God, this image to their false God, Diana or Artemis, as, as she's also known. And this false God was the goddess of fertility. And as such, the worship of Diana involved gross immorality. Okay, basically it was a uh, the worship of Diana was all about prostitution. That's basically what it was. And this temple stood in Ephesus with these practices going on until it was pulled down by believers. Christians were the ones who destroyed this temple. And that happened because the emperor Theodosius made Christianity the state religion. In about 400 AD, he made it the state religion and so the Christians went up and pulled this temple down, destroyed it. And within 800 years, it was completely forgotten. And it wasn't discovered again until the 1800s. Totally gone. And so Christianity in the end won out, didn't it? Christianity won out over this false god here in Ephesus. And I'll say all that just to give you a bit of background here about this city that Paul is now ministering and the gross immorality that's taking place there. 
And this is the next major city that Paul is going to spend some time ministering in. You know, finally, Paul is brought to this city by God. If you remember, Paul had wanted to visit here right back at the start of his second missionary journey. Go back to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 and verse 6. It says, Now when they gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. Remember the start of his missionary journey, he's gone through Phrygia, he's gone through Galatia, and he wanted to go across into Asia with the, the intent of going into Ephesus. But God said no. And so he went north instead. And then God said no, so he went across the top. And then he got up going down to the Aegean Sea. You see, God had other plans for Paul, didn't he? God had other plans. You know, at the time, Paul didn't understand why God was doing this. He didn't get it, did he? He didn't understand. He, he was at a loss. Why is God moving him in such way? You know, God had a purpose. God wanted him to go across to Macedonia. He wanted him to go to Philippi and to preach there. He wanted him to go down to Athens and then to Corinth. He had all these other places for him to minister first before he came back to the city of Ephesus. You know, now that Paul has finally arrived in the city where he wants to be, he still doesn't get to stay very long. God still doesn't allow him to minister here for a very long time. You know, Ephesus proves to be a place where the Jews, they open their arms and they welcome Paul. They welcome him. If you read there, verse 19, it says, And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered, in, uh, entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not. Now, Paul enters into the synagogue and he begins to preach to the Jews, as he always did, preach that Christ is their Messiah. And the Jews here, they accept his message. They're open. They're listening. They're, they're receiving it. How much of a contrast is this to Corinth, where he's just come from? Where the, the synagogue kicked him out. They told him, you have to leave. And, and Paul had dusted off his cloak and said, your blood be upon your own heads. I'll go on to the Gentiles. But here in Corinth, the Jews accept him. It's a, it's a great place to minister, isn't it? There's an openness. There is a receptiveness to the gospel. And they're so receptive that they're begging Paul to stay. In verse 20 there. They, they're asking him, they're desiring him to stay longer. They're saying, don't leave Paul, stay, minister to us. But you see, Paul knew that that wasn't God's will. Paul knew God's will was for him to keep moving on. If you read verse 21, or well, the end of verse 20, it says, He consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I'll return unto you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. Paul says, I can't. God has other plans. Can you imagine how hard this decision must have been for Paul? Imagine how hard. This is where he's wanted to be all this time. He wanted to get to this city. He now gets there. Things are happening and God says, move. God says, you can't stay. You've got to keep going. It's a hard decision. You know, Paul had to submit here to the will of God, didn't he? He had to lay his own desires aside, what he wanted. He had to put that aside and he had to surrender to the will of God said earlier he wanted to come to this place right back at the start of his missionary journey and now he's there and God says you can't stay you need to move on you see God had other plans God was leading Paul back to Antioch as I said at the start leading him back to report on the ministry to his sending church 
and he was also going via Jerusalem. It says in verse 21 there, Paul says, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh at Jerusalem. So he's heading via Jerusalem and then up to the city of Antioch. And being in Jerusalem in time for this feast, okay, it was the feast of Passover it seems, there's a reason for that. You see, the feast of Passover meant that all the Jews, they would often make a trek home, wouldn't they? They'd come to the city for Passover. And so Paul, being there at that time, would have a great opportunity to minister to people, Jews from all over the world, wouldn't he? Who had made this journey. It was going to be an ideal place for ministry to have an opportunity to, to meet and to witness to key Jewish leaders from all over the Roman Empire. So they could then take it back with them, couldn't they? There's a purpose to it. Another reason that he had to make haste here and leave quickly is because the seas were soon going to be closed. Okay, if he's trying to get back for Passover, it means he's got to leave now because basically it's the last ship before the season comes to an end and there's, there's no travel on the, on the sea. It's too rough, it's too dangerous. And so he needs to leave immediately. You know, Paul tells them at the end of verse 21, um, he says, but I will return again unto you if God will. Paul says, I will come back. I'll come back and I'll minister unto you. And then he adds that clause, doesn't he? He says, if God will. You see, Paul's desire was to minister in Ephesus. That was his heart's desire. That's where he wanted to go. He wanted to minister there. He had a burden for these people. And indeed, these people are hungry for the truth. They want to know more. But Paul was ever submitted to the will of God, wasn't he? He was always saying, if God will. That was, that was his, his, his desire. He wanted to do what God wanted. You see, it wasn't a matter if Paul wanted to come back. He did. That was clear. It was a matter of if God wanted him to come back. That was the determining factor. And I think in this first section here, that really is the important lesson here. That is the important lesson. This one phrase here in verse 21, if God will. If God will. See, as believers, if we know Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, then He is our Heavenly Father. He is our King. He is our God. And our attitude should be like Paul's, if God will. Like Paul, we should be willing to surrender our will, our desires, even if that desire is good. Paul's desire was not wrong, was it? It was a good desire to be in Ephesus. But he understood that he had to lay his desires aside and let God lead. Let God make the decision. In Proverbs chapter 3, and verse 5 and 6, we know it well. It says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. We've got to lay aside our understanding, don't we? And we've got to let him lead. And this is what God requires of us as his servants, that we submit ourselves to his will. You know, we would do well... I think to echo the words of our Savior. Remember as he prayed to his heavenly Father, what did the Lord Jesus say? He said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I think we'd do well to echo those words, wouldn't we? To say, not my will, but yours be done. That's what Paul's doing here. He wanted to come back, but he says, only if God wills it. You see, God's will must be the determining factor in all of our decisions in life. He must have the final say, even if it's a good thing, we need to ask the Lord. God's will comes first. We need to put him first in our lives like the Apostle Paul here. 
And so Paul now, led of the Lord, he leaves Ephesus and he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there. They stay behind. And he departs and goes to Jerusalem. Uh, at the end of verse 21, it says, And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he landed at Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. And after he'd spent t- some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. So he leaves. He takes, takes this ship now across the, the sea and he lands at Caesarea. Now Caesarea was the port on the coast. So he lands there and then he goes up to Jerusalem and he greets the church there, the brethren. And from there, we're told that he travels up, well, down, it says. That's because you go down from Jerusalem. Okay, but he's going north. He goes up to the city of Antioch and reports on the work. We're not told how long he stays in Antioch, but after a period of time, he now leaves on his third missionary journey. Okay, Luke sort of skims over all these events here. Okay, he goes to Jerusalem, he goes up to Antioch, and now he's leaving on his third journey. Okay, that's verse 23. It says, and after, he depart- after he'd spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. So he's left now on his third missionary journey. He heads back up into Phrygia and Galatia to visit the churches to, to see how the work is going. And then we see in chapter 19, just skip over there, chapter 19, verse 1, the Lord eventually gives Paul his heart desire, doesn't he? In chapter 19, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. So eventually, the Lord gives Paul his heart's desire, doesn't he? Eventually, Paul comes back to the city of Ephesus. And he spends a total of three years ministering in that place. And chapter 19 and onwards is all about that great ministry, that blessed ministry that he has there in the city of Ephesus. But before we get to that, Luke gives us a side note. Luke tells us about what has happened while Paul has been away. And so that's our second point this morning, Apollos' ministry in Ephesus. Apollos' ministry in Ephesus. Verse 24, it says, And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. And so while Paul has been away, yeah, he's, he's got on his ship and he's left, he's departed to go south and go down to uh, Jerusalem. It's almost like as his ship leaves the harbour, Apollos is, arrives from the other direction. This man Apollos arrives and begins to preach and teach in the synagogue. Okay, it says there in um, verse 25, this man was instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John, and he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So he arrives and, and he's boldly preaching and teaching concerning the things of the Lord in the synagogue. And we're told that this man is from the city of Alexandria. And Alexandria, of course, was down in Egypt. Okay, he was the at this time, it was the capital city of Egypt. It was founded by Alexander the Great himself. And it was the second most important city in the whole of the Roman Empire, only behind Rome itself. Okay? It was an important city. It was known as the center of education, the center of philosophy. It had, a great, it had the great library of Alexandria, okay, which contained 700,000 scrolls or volumes. It was huge. 
It was a city with a population of 600,000 people and made up of all nationalities. There's people from all over the world who lived in this place. And apparently at least a quarter of the population was Jewish. A quarter of those 600,000 people were Jewish. And so this Jewish community was very influential in Alexandria at this time. And it seems that it's from here that Apollos is trained in the scriptures. He, he gets his learning, gets his understanding from Alexandria. And indeed, this man, Apollos, he knows the scriptures well. Okay, he's able to, to teach them with eloquence and with power. Verse 24 tells us that. It says, And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. So he's got eloquence as he speaks and, and he's mighty as he speaks about the scriptures. In verse 25, it says that he was fervent in the spirits and spake and taught diligently. So he has this, this fervency as well to teach and to, to share his knowledge. And he's diligent in sharing the things of the Lord. Indeed, in verse 26, it says that he's bold in speaking in the synagogue. The point is, this man has a lot going for him, doesn't he? He has a lot going for him. He's, he's knowledgeable. He has a fervency, a, a real passion to teach. And he's bold. He's not afraid to go up and speak. You know the one problem with Apollos was that he had an incomplete message. Apollos had an incomplete message. The end of verse 25 tells us knowing only the baptism of John. He had an incomplete message. <coughs> Excuse me. Basically, his message got as far as the baptism of John and stopped. Basically, as far as he knew, that was, that was all his knowledge contained. Now, he knew nothing about Calvary. He had the Lord dying on the cross for his sins. He knew nothing about the resurrection of his Messiah. He knew nothing about the, the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell him. You see, he lacked spiritual knowledge, didn't he? Understand? He had a real zeal, a real passion, but he lacked understanding. You know, the ministry of John the Baptist was, of course, important, wasn't it? It was an important part of God's redemptive plan. You know, John came before Christ preaching uh, baptism unto repentance. And those he baptized, it was in repentance, getting ready for the Messiah. Because John was saying he's coming, he's, he's around the corner. Okay, He was teaching and preaching that the one is coming. You know, John also announced the future baptism of the Holy Spirit. He, he taught that when Christ came, he would baptize them with the Holy Ghost. And so John had taught both these things. He said the Messiah has arrived. He said, prepare your hearts. And he said, the Holy Spirit is coming. And so Apollos knew of those things. He knew of those promises, but he didn't know about the fulfillment, did he? He didn't know about the fulfillments. Now, the question might be asked, how did Apollos, living in Egypt, find about all this? How did he get this knowledge? As I said, Alexandria was a city famous for learning, and so it's possible that some of John's disciples have left Judea and they've traveled south down to Egypt, haven't they? And they've taken with them their understanding. They've taken with them what they've learned from John. They've taken that knowledge down to Alexandria and they've taught that. They've given what they knew unto others which themselves was an incomplete message, wasn't it? And so they've taught it unto others down there. Indeed, verse 25 indicates to us that, you know, Apollos has been trained. Okay, It says, this man was instructed in the way of the Lord. 
the word instructed there implies some formal teaching. That he has been formally taught these things in, in Alexandria. You know, that training, as I said, was limited to the facts of John the Baptist's ministry. It was limited. And so this man, Apollos, he knows the Messiah has come. He knows uh, this wonderful truth and he can prove it from the scriptures. Okay? He has this wonderful knowledge of Old Testament scriptures. But he, can't, he doesn't understand that Christ has died. He doesn't understand Christ has risen. He doesn't understand all these wonderful things. And so you know what? In verse 26, we read this. It says, And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Now, as he stands and boldly declares these things in the synagogue, Aquila and Priscilla are there and they're listening and they're going, hey, you know what? This man needs some help. This man needs to be filled in on some truths. You know, they could see the potential in Apollos. And so they took him aside, they took him home, and they expounded unto him more fully the wonderful message of Christ. It says in verse 26, they expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. You see, they led him into a deeper knowledge, didn't they? They led him from where he was into an understanding about all that Christ had done for him. Could you imagine Apollos' joy when he learned that his Messiah had died for him on the cross and that his Messiah was buried and his Messiah had risen again and returned back to glory and that in his place he'd sent the Comforter to indwell our hearts. Could you imagine his joy when he learned these things? Now, we could go into whether or not he was already saved or not and there's varying opinions on it. I sort of tend to believe he already is, that he's perhaps like an Old Testament saint, okay, like the disciples were before Christ died and was buried and rose again. He has an understanding, okay? He believes these things concerning Christ. He just doesn't know the end of it all, okay? But you can argue against that. We don't know for sure, okay? But the point is here, he gets now this full understanding, doesn't he? He gets given this full understanding, and now he has the joy of the Lord in his heart. Now, I couldn't move on this morning without asking, you know, do you know that joy yourself? Do you have that full understanding of who Christ is and what he's done for you? Sure, we all know that Christ came to earth and we know the story that he died and was buried and rose again. But do you realize and know and understand he did it for you? He did it for you to pay the price for your sin so that you could spend eternity in heaven one day. And the Bible says that all we have to do to be saved and to, to experience this joy in our hearts is to ask him to save us by faith. Acts 16, 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And it's the only way to escape the punishment to come because we're all sinners. We're all sinners guilty and we're, we're guilty and, and, and we deserve to go to hell. It's the punishment we all deserve. And the only way to escape that is Christ, is the Messiah and what he's done for us on the cross. And so I ask you this morning, do you have this joy that Apollos here found himself, this knowledge that Christ died for you, was buried and rose again? Do you know the Savior? You know, with this wonderful, new, full understanding, Apollos, he now continues to minister. He goes back to the synagogue now and he, he with a new fervor, begins to preach and teach. These wonderful things that he now has full understanding about. And after a period of time, he leaves Ephesus and he goes into Achaia. Okay, verse 27, it says, And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. 
who, when he was come, helped them much which have believed through grace. You know, so effective was his ministry here now in Ephesus that when he leaves after this period of time, he leaves with a letter of recommendation. The saints here in Ephesus, they now give him a letter saying, yes, receive this guy, he's a great teacher. He has a good understanding of the truth. And so he leaves Ephesus and he sails across the Aegean Sea in the opposite direction to what Paul came. And he goes across and he lands and he goes up to Corinth. And he goes there to minister and to teach and to preach. Chapter 19, verse 1 tells us that that's where he went in particular. It says, and it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth. And so he's gone from Ephesus, he's gone up to Corinth. And after he's left, Paul arrives in Ephesus. It's like they just keep missing each other. And he's now over in Corinth. And while he's in Corinth, you know, he proves to have a very successful ministry there. Verse 27, it tells us that he helped them much. He helped them much. He arrives there and he teaches and he preaches and he strengthens these believers in the faith. You know, Apollos strengthens these ones that Paul had planted. Paul planted that ministry. And Apollos, he now has the opportunity to strengthen them in the faith. And indeed, he even has success in convincing the Jews that Christ is their Messiah. Look in verse 28. It says, For he mightily convinced the Jews and that publicly, showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was Christ. You know, he has the opportunity to publicly defend Christ, publicly defend the Lord, to stand up and show the Jews that Christ is their Messiah. In other words, he publicly defends the truth here. You know, and he effectively, by his defense, silences the Jews. See, the point is, this man, Apollos, he has a real knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures. He has a real knowledge and a grasp on the, the prophecies concerning the Messiah. So much so that as he stands up here in Corinth and the Jews are rebuking him, he has an answer to every argument they give him. Every single argument. He's able to knock it down. That's the idea here when it says he convinced them. He silenced them. You see, Apollos had every counter-argument answered. Such was his knowledge of the Scriptures. And you know, the influence that Apollos exercised here in Corinth is evident from Paul's reference to him in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Just turn over there. We're almost done this morning. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 6. This is Paul himself. He says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Now, Paul himself acknowledges the influence of Apollos in Corinth. Now, Paul had started the work. He'd planted the work there. He'd sown the seed. And Apollos had arrived and watered it. And God gave the increase. You see, the point is both had a role to play, didn't they? Both these men, even though they kept missing each other, they had a role to play. You know, their roles were different, if you like. You know, Paul, he had the hard task, didn't he? He had to come in and he had to plough the ground. He had to break up that soil. He had to plant the seed. And then Apollos arrived and he had the opportunity to water. And he had the opportunity to see the, the saints strengthened in the faith. He had the opportunity to, to answer the opposition with the knowledge that he had of the Scriptures. 
And together they saw Corinth be strengthened and his ministry built up. And indeed Ephesus as well. Both were used. Both men were blessed in their ministries, weren't they? And used by God. And you see, the same is true for all of us today in the service of the Lord, isn't it? If we're saved here today, then we're fellow servants, aren't we? We're serving God together. And the point is, we all have a role to play. Some of us get to plant. And then along comes someone else and gets the opportunity to water. And they get to oftentimes see the increase and they get to see the fruits where perhaps the one who planted didn't. But you know, ultimately, God is the one who gives the increase. God uses both. God needs both to accomplish his will. The point is we labor together, don't we? In unity to accomplish his will. Paul is not upset at Apollos, by the way. In 1 Corinthians, you know, you know that there's a faction that starts out where people are saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. Paul's not upset at Apollos. It's not Apollos' fault. Apollos did nothing wrong. He did the ministry, he did the work there. He was faithful. And together they accomplished God's will. You know, our part today is to be like Paul and like Apollos, be willing to surrender to the will of God and follow his directions, follow his leading. Apollos is doing the same as Paul, isn't he? He's following God's leading. God's leading him to Ephesus, and then God's leading him across to Corinth. They're both being led of the spirits. They're both saying, if God will. And God then is using them to accomplish his will. Beloved, we need to have the same attitude. We need to have that attitude, if God will. Surrender our will, our desires to his, and then faithfully fulfill the role he has for us. Whether that is planting or whether that's watering. Because, beloved, God will give the increase as we serve him together. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. Lord, we've covered a fair bit this morning, but I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts through your word. That, Lord, you would indeed help us all to lay our own desires, our own will aside, to submit to your will, to have the attitude like Paul, if God will. And, Lord, help us to then faithfully serve in the role that you have for us so that together we might indeed plant and we might water and we might indeed see you give the increase, we pray. And, Lord, I pray if there's anybody here today who hasn't come to that knowledge of what you've done for them, that you'd speak to their hearts as well. And that today they'd understand fully that salvation is found in Christ. And bless as we close now with a hymn, in Jesus' name.